0: The History of
1: Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary.
0: Dun-dun-dun-dun, 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 dun dun da dun so, I mean, Dress Listers, I might be humming a very familiar tune to many of you. Uh, Here Comes the Bride is <laughs> a very popular song with a very literal title. But what I did not know, actually, April, before this episode is that the song has accompanied brides down the aisle for over 160 years, which is pretty incredible. Ah. I did not know that either. Yeah, it's actually believed that the song was first played at the wedding of Frederick William IV of Prussia and Princess Victoria Adelaide Marie-Louise, and their wedding actually took place on January 25th, 1858.
1: Yes, and that little factoid brought to us by Olivia Waxman of Time Magazine, who kind of investigated this history. It is apparently Princess Victoria and her love of opera that we have to thank for not only the use of Richard Wagner's Here Comes the Bride Chorus, originally written for an opera he created in 1850, but also just a general musical accompaniment of any kind at weddings. Because having music played while the bride was walking down the aisle was not a particularly common practice during the middle of
0: the 19th century, but it was one that quickly caught on. Yeah, so creating wedding trends actually runs in the family because it was Princess Victoria's mother, Queen Victoria, who is largely responsible for setting the trend for white wedding dresses in Europe and America. Queen Victoria's wedding dress is just one of the many we will discuss today with our guest, Kimberly Christman Campbell, author of the book, The Way We Wed, A Global History of Wedding Fashion.
1: Illustrated by 100 photographs, This book is a beautiful testament to the wedding dress tradition, highlighting both wedding dresses worn around the world and the personal stories attached to this symbolic and special garment. And we are so pleased to welcome Kimberly back to the show.
0: Kimberly, wedding season is in full bloom, and I could think of no better way to celebrate than talking to you about your wonderful book, which is All Things Wedding. Welcome back to Dress. Thank you. I'm glad to be back and I'm glad that weddings are coming back. Let's talk about them. Yeah, super excited to talk to you today. I love that you emphasize in your book that this book is really about real clothes worn by real people. I'd love if you could tell us about the inspiration behind writing a book about wedding dresses, one of the most valued and ubiquitous items of clothing found in cultures around the world.
2: But when we're talking about fashion and especially wedding fashion, there's often a disconnect between the ideal and the reality. What we see in magazines or on the runway or on Instagram or even in movies or literature doesn't always line up with what people actually wear, even though it may be very influential. So I wanted to focus on things that were actually worn rather than what designers or etiquette books or artists said people wore.
0: Yeah, so we meet so many wonderful individuals throughout this book, and and we learn about not only what they wore, but the significance and symbolism behind what they wore. You divide your study of wedding fashions across 12 chapters, and you begin with a topic that has captivated popular imagination for centuries. I mean, today, it's still, everybody gets so excited about this, and that is the topic of royal weddings. I can think of no more perfect place to start than with arguably one of the most famous weddings of the 19th century, and that, of course, is the wedding of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who married on February 10th, 1840. Can you describe her dress and then its historical significance. Essentially, what the queen wore in the 1840s set a precedent that Euro-American brides still in many ways follow to this very day. It's pretty incredible.
2: I had to start the book with royals because they were the original wedding fashion influencers. And so much of what we think of today as being traditional wedding dress was actually borrowed from royal dress, like trains and tiaras or, in China, dragon robes. And throughout history, fashion has Reinforce the notion that every bride is queen for a day, often very literally in what she's wearing. So Queen Victoria wasn't the first bride to wear a white dress or lace or orange blossoms, uh, but she's the reason most brides wear white today in Western contexts, uh, simply because she was so famous and popular, but also because wearing white was very unexpected for someone in her position. Uh, this is one case where a queen actually dressed like a commoner for her wedding day instead of wearing gold or silver with her crown or her velvet robes of state, as was usual for royal brides at the time.
0: Yeah. And what I really love about her dress is, like you said, it was, she wanted to be just a quote unquote, maybe not a normal woman for the day, but she wanted to dress... <laughs> more simply. And a dress more simply, she wore what was essentially a white dress. And this is the 1840s, so it had a big skirt, a very form-fitted bodice. And what I love is you feature all these details in the book. So you talk about how 200 women were employed for nine months to create this dress because it is covered in, I believe, Honiton lace.
2: That's right. And the lace was really the most expensive part of the dress. Um, Handmade lace was literally worth its weight in gold. And Queen Victoria loved her wedding lace so much that she continued to wear it throughout her life. Uh, She worked at the weddings of her children. She was even buried in her wedding veil. So we don't have the veil anymore. But lace was something that would be reused again and again. And even when she was uh, in mourning for her husband and, you know, very elderly, she continued to get out her wedding lace on special occasions.
0: Yeah, and what I love too is that during this period is this is kind of that transition. Um, It's the industrial era. It's the beginning of mass industrialization. And so she's really supporting the lace industries by wearing bobbin lace because it's handmade, not machine-made. And it's during this period of rapid industrialization. And I also find it interesting that she required her daughters and future daughter-in-laws to wear it. Dr. Kate Strasden was on our very first season Talking about Princess Alexandra and how Princess Alexandra's uncle made her this incredible Belgian lace wedding gown and she couldn't wear it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, she of course was from Denmark, but she couldn't wear it because she was transitioning into this new role. However, Kate did find, I guess by examining the dress, that she had featured this little piece of bobbin of the Belgian lace inside her wedding gown. So kind of like this hidden act of resistance or homage to her own heritage, which I find. Quite lovely.
2: Well, I would have gone with the Belgian lace myself. I mean, it, it, it's the <laughs> best. But you could see this tradition continue even today. And for example, Kate Middleton's wedding dress, which was made of Carrick lace, which is again another British Isles specialty.
0: Yeah, absolutely wonderful. One of the things that you demonstrate throughout the book is that wedding dresses hold symbolic values far beyond mere aesthetics. And this holds true in cultures around the world who really imbue these garments with an incredible amount of meaning, be it religious, familial, cultural. This is particularly evident in the wedding attire of Crown Prince Yang of Korea and Princess Masako of Japan, who married in 1920 in Japan, and then again in 1922 in Korea. I'd love if you could talk about the symbolism of their wedding attire, because it was worn for not one, but two weddings.
2: Well, first of all, what really came through as I was researching this book is that so many of the things that we think are trendy or modern in weddings actually have very long histories. Whereas a lot of the things that we think are very traditional and old are actually pretty recent inventions in historical terms. And this is a good example of that. So like many modern couples, Prince Young and Princess Masako had two ceremonies, both to honor their different heritages, but also because it was just not practical to get both sides of their family together in one place. Um, for political reasons as much as logistical reasons so for the korean wedding which was held on the second anniversary of the japanese wedding when they already had a young son they both wore korean court dress for masako that meant a formal geokui of blue silk embroidered with 154 pairs of green pheasants symbolizing love and longevity in marriage The groom wore a red robe embroidered with a dragon. And this was 1922. So normally they both wore fashionable Western dress. These were actually medieval garments that had been fossilized over time. And often it's this visual and um, material link to the past that gives wedding clothes their symbolic weight, just like a long white gown with a train today, or any other ceremonial dress like graduation robes, for example.
0: Yeah. And while we're on the subject of royal weddings, we would be remiss not to mention this incredible Christian Dior gown that is featured in this book. It's worn by, and please forgive my pronunciation, but I think Saraya Esfandieri Bakhtiari to her marriage to the Iranian Shah Muhammad Reza Pahlavi in 1951. The gown weighed in at an astonishing 40 pounds. There's 37 yards of silver lame that was bejeweled in over 6,000 fake diamonds. (laughs) And even more remarkable was that the bride ended up cutting off 10 meters of fabric during the wedding party to ease the burden of this very heavy gown. It turns out she had been sick coming up to the wedding, so she needed a little bit of a reprieve, I think. But it is this level of detail and insight that I really appreciated about your approach to the book.
2: Well, this is actually my favorite gown in the whole book. So that's probably why I included so (laughs) many details and pictures. Uh, It really does have everything you could want in a wedding gown, including white marabou trim that looks like fur. She wore a fur cape with it. It has a jacket so you can transform it from a long sleeve gown for the religious ceremony to a strapless one for the reception. And Princess Saraya's diary has been published. So we also have a behind the scenes account of what it was like to wear this fabulous dress um, not very pleasant as it
0: turned out <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I love that too because you do provide a lot of insights from the wears of these gowns into what it was like to wear them maybe why they chose the details etc cetera, etc cetera. so just incredibly fantastic and we're going to hear about more fantastic wedding gowns after a short sponsor break welcome back dress listers. So if Queen Victoria's wedding was the wedding of the 19th century, then the next wedding we are going to discuss is arguably the wedding of the 20th century. It is also a nice transition into our discussion from royal to celebrity weddings because our bride encapsulates both categories. And I am, of course, talking about the wedding broadcast to over 30 million viewers in 1956. Kimberly, please tell us about the wedding and wedding dress of actress Grace Kelly, who married the Prince of Monaco in 1956.
2: Well, you know, I wasn't quite sure where you were going with this question at first, because so many 20th century weddings were described as the wedding of the century. And every 10 years, there was a new wedding of the century. Right. But Grace Kelly (laughs) is the cover girl on the book. And she's a great example of a bride who was not just queen for a day, but a princess for the rest of her life. Because she was already a celebrity and there was so much media attention, and she had the resources of the MGM publicity and costume department at her service, as well as her own very wealthy Philadelphia family. We know a lot about this gown, as well as the bridesmaid's gown, her whole wedding wardrobe, really, um, including the dress she wore to announce her engagement, the suit she wore for the civil ceremony, which was the day before the religious ceremony, and the gown she wore to the wedding gala at the Monaco Opera House in between the two ceremonies. Again, we think we invented the wedding week, but the idea of buying several different new outfits for several different wedding events was a very old one, even, and Grace Kelly's time.
0: Yeah, and I find it really interesting that MGM actually bankrolled the entire wedding, especially because apparently after this she was no longer going to be an actress.
2: That's right. They were hoping to lure her back, but they actually had a policy of doing this for all of their actresses, including Elizabeth Taylor. And it was a way of getting publicity for the studio while also sort of burnishing the images of their stars.
0: That's right. And I think she had two movies that were coming out. Um, And I love that Helen Rose, actually, who had worked with her on several of her films, designed her wedding dress. Helen Rose is a costume designer. It took 35 people six weeks to make her two bridal gowns. So absolutely incredible. And just listeners, you'll have to get your hands on this book to look at these wonderful images of this gown, of course, and learn some more um, juicy details behind the scenes. And if I had to choose my favorite celebrity wedding from the book, or maybe I would just give a prize for like the most over-the-top, extravagant, performance wedding of the 20th century, or perhaps ever. I'd never heard of this wedding, so it was so much fun to learn about it. It would have to go to the 1974 wedding of Sly Stone and Kathy Silva. Why was this wedding so exceptional?
2: Well, I was really hoping this wedding would be recreated in the Netflix Halston series, uh, but unfortunately it wasn't. So I'll tell you about it. (laughs) Sly and Kathy got married on stage at Madison Square Garden as the opening act to a concert by Sly's band, Sly and the Family Stone. For $10,000, uh, a complete bargain by today's standards, Halston made gold and black outfits for the entire wedding party, which included the bride, and the groom, their mothers, their siblings, the best man, the band members and backup singers, plus 12 black models who carried gold palm fronds on stage and were just sort of there for atmosphere. There was a floor-length gold sequined cape jumpsuit for Sly and a matching halter gown for Kathy. Halston actually made a lot of wedding gowns, but nothing quite this fabulous.
0: Yeah, and actually, if you'll bear with me, I'd like to read a portion of this article I found from 1974 from The New Yorker. They wrote this huge article about this wedding which I'm sure you've read but it goes into all of this detail about the wedding and it includes the couple's fittings with Halston which as you said he was paid $10,000 which is like $50,000 today but I just want to read a little snippet of this article and it says quote in the office of Halston which was walled entirely with mirrors Halston held up for size inspection a spangled gold dress intended for the backup singers Halston held the dress at arm's length swinging it back and forth under a line of lights attached to the seat feeling regarding intently the reflection it made in the mirrored wall opposite. Halston himself, a slight man with dark hair, was wearing silver clogs, black pants, a black turtleneck, a blue shirt with a big collar, and mirrored glasses. See, Halston said to Slide, it reflects like nothing you've ever seen. Isn't it incredible? It should look as though it was electric. I believe it will be electric, Sly said. So you could just kind of imagine what these ensembles would have looked like under the lights. And then just to have been, I mean, there was, tens of thousands of people there to witness this. It's absolutely incredible.
2: Yeah, it it wasn't quite sold out, but almost sold out. Um, In a lot of ways, this has a lot in common with Grace Kelly's wedding because it was designed for the spectacle. I mean, the MGM costume department knew everything about how to make somebody look good on screen. And because MGM was bankrolling this wedding uh, in exchange for doing a documentary, they designed it with the home viewer in mind. Um, It would have been great on Instagram, too. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So many weddings to talk about, so little time, but we are going to try. So a few honorable mentions from the celebrity section. You know, I did not realize how epic Madonna and Sean Penn's wedding was in (laughs) 1985.
2: Oh, you're too young. You don't remember.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Andy Warhol was a guest and he called it the most exciting weekend of his life. This is also the section where you include Ellen DeGeneres and Portia De Rossi's 2008 nuptials. They were both dressed in Zac Posen. This wedding was significant on so many levels. I'd love if you can tell us a little bit more about it.
2: Well, first of all, Andy Warhol's diaries are a source I keep going back to because he was such a keen observer of fashion. And he was also greatly in demand as a wedding guest. He had a lot to say about Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver's wedding too. And he went to that one with Grace Jones. Oh, that's his date. You could argue that celebrities aren't real people with real wedding clothes because they're so much more privileged and attractive than the rest of us. But they are hugely influential in setting wedding trends. And I don't just mean fashion trends. They have popularized and really normalized. Things like beach weddings, uh, double weddings, and destination weddings, as well as more controversial practices like same-sex weddings, interracial or cross-cultural marriages, and remarriage after divorce, which found widespread acceptance only after celebrities did them first, uh, both on screen and off. Also, I wanted readers to be able to pick up this book and see faces they recognized. I couldn't include the 500 images I would have liked to, so if I could make the point with a celebrity wedding picture, I did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you did it wonderfully. This book is so beautifully illustrated. Dress listeners, you'll have to go out and get a copy right away. And we are going to learn a more about real clothes for real people after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. As mentioned, this book is about the real clothes worn by real people. And the vast majority of real people are not wealthy royal or a celebrity. (laughs) So one of my favorite sections in your book is chapter five, which really explores what wedding gowns have meant historically for, you know, everyday people. And you write, quote, the idea of a gown or any other garment intended to be worn only once would have been antithetical to our forebears. For the vast majority of people, wedding clothing was everyday dress. Can you tell us what you mean by this statement and introduce us to some of the women who encapsulate this idea, such as the famed scientist Marie Curie, which I just love that she made an appearance in this book. <laughs> it was not expected, <laughs> but appreciated. <laughs>
2: Uh, Well, Marie and Pierre Curie were starving students at the Sorbonne when they got married. Uh, Marie literally only owned one dress. And when Pierre offered to buy her a new dress for the wedding, she said, please get me something practical and dark so I can wear it again in the lab. And she ended up getting married in a dark blue dress. And there are many, many examples in the book of brides wearing colored dresses long after white wedding gowns were considered supposedly traditional Not for the sake of practicality uh, always, but maybe because they were older or they were divorced or because there was a fashion for pastel wedding gowns or metallic wedding gowns, or they just wore their best or their favorite dress regardless of the color. Now, curator Cynthia Anais pointed out in her excellent exhibition catalog of wedding gowns in the Cincinnati Museum collection that white gowns have tended to be preserved in museums because people assume they were wedding gowns, even if they weren't, whereas many colored wedding dresses were not preserved because people assumed that they weren't wedding gowns or didn't realize that they were wedding gowns. And this gives us a very skewed material record of what brides actually wore. Uh, The colored wedding dress was much more common than
0: the white one wedding dresses in in archives are really helpful because you can date them a lot of times they come with a date a lot of garments and collections don't come with a specific date but a lot of times wedding gowns do and so you have this ability to kind of trace them back to a specific time and place and hopefully person. But it's super interesting to see women who who got married in like what would we would describe as a suit today, you know, like a, a buttoned up bodice and skirt, something very practical that they then would have been able to wear in their everyday lives. This whole idea of this one-off wedding dress is very much a product of maybe the 20th century. You can agree or disagree with me on that. Yeah,
2: definitely the late 19th and the early 20th century. Uh, but even in the 19th century, if you wore a white getting wedding gown, you would be expected to wear it as evening wear for at least the first year of your marriage. It wasn't a one-time only affair. Uh, and you, you raise a great point, which is that I never thought I would write a book about wedding dresses. First of all, there's already a bunch of them. And second of all, I didn't find them that interesting from a historical or a fashion standpoint. But When I was researching my book Worn on This Day and looking for things that had a precise date on them, I found so many precisely dated wedding clothes, clothes worn to weddings, not just by the bride, but by the groom or the guests. And I found a lot of fascinating untold stories that I just couldn't fit into that book because it would have become a wedding book, but I decided to actually write a wedding book. And it doesn't have that day by day format, but it does look at wedding fashion through history and the idea of this gown worn on a certain day or the suit worn on a certain day that was often worn again.
0: Yeah. And that might be a reason why some of them don't actually survive because they were worn <laughs> over and over. Whereas I guess if you were of a certain class, as is the case with a lot of museum collections, the dresses that were preserved are ones that were only worn a couple times or in a very specific period um, before being put away for posterity. And I also love about this section, you talk about dressmakers and how dressmakers would have had access to maybe quote unquote higher fashion because they had the ability to make it themselves. There's this wonderful story about, I believe they're an Italian sister dressmaking firm, the Turochi sisters.
2: Turochi shop. Yeah. The Turochi dressmaking
0: shop in Providence, uh, which was the subject of a great exhibition by uh, RISD Museum. Oh, wonderful. And they gifted everyone who worked in their shop, a wedding gown, which I just found like a, such a wonderful story that if you worked for them, they were going to celebrate you. Even if that meant you getting married was, you were now going to be leaving their, their employ. <laughs>
2: Exactly. Most of them didn't come back to work after the wedding.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is one of my favorite sections too, because you talk about paper wedding dresses and, you know, there's affordable wedding dresses that, you know, come to be in the 1960s. And I guess disposable if you're talking about paper wedding dresses, but those are super, super fun. And while on the subject of economy, I would love to talk to you about your chapter on wartime weddings. That was probably unexpected, but something that was really, really insightful I found this chapter particularly engaging because it really speaks to women's enterprising nature historically and also the ways in which societal norms and traditions are adapted during these periods of war. Please tell us about what your studies of wartime fashion revealed to you. And was there anything that surprised you?
2: Well, I I really loved uh, writing this chapter. It's my favorite chapter. And it is heavily focused on World War II weddings because so many great pieces have survived. And also because there was a really interesting dynamic at work in Europe. Wartime weddings were very small. People were encouraged to, you know, make do in men. That women wore suits or uniforms. In the U.S., there was a much different attitude. Uh, bridal gowns were not rationed. Women were encouraged to have big, romantic white weddings as a way of boosting morale. Uh, so there were two very different approaches going on, and one dress that sort of bridged that nicely is the parachute wedding dress, which is a, a long white gown that made out of it parachute. <laughs> parachuted. There there are so many great examples of these that have survived.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a white dress that is made out of a silk parachute. And in many cases, it was gifted to the bride by her husband-to-be. And there's one instance where you write about this was the parachute that saved the groom's life. So it's just incredible. And there is an extant surviving example that you feature in the book. And I think that's my favorite gown because of all of this symbolic significance that went into its existence. It's incredible.
2: Yeah, a lot of parachute gowns have survived. The one in the book is the one in the Smithsonian uh, that the groom wore too, because it was his parachute that saved his life, and he gave it to his fiance. And the gown still kind of looks like a parachute. I mean, you can tell it (laughs) used to be a parachute, but it's very beautiful and very romantic. And they, um, she wore it. Her daughter and daughter-in-law wore it, and then it went to the Smithsonian. Wow! Wonderful.
0: You also have a chapter on cross-cultural marriages, which we've talked about a little bit earlier, and the ways in which the marrying of two different cultures is often reflected in hybrid wedding attire. Can you highlight a few of your favorite examples from this section?
2: If you read wedding magazines, um, cultural fusion is a hot buzzword today to describe the practice of combining different cultures and religious traditions and fashion influences in a single ceremony or celebration. And again, this is something that celebrities have helped to popularize. If you look at Nick Jonas and Priyanka Chopra's wedding events or Stephen Young's wedding, which blended elements of his Korean heritage and his Detroit upbringing Uh, But it's nothing new. Again, royals have been doing this for centuries. It also played a part more recently in proxy marriages during the age of immigration, as well as wartime weddings when servicemen and women stationed overseas married foreigners. And this sensitive use of specific and culturally meaningful garments or designers or materials or colors can help diffuse some of the controversy over cross-cultural or interracial weddings, signaling acceptance of each other's backgrounds and traditions. And I think one of the reasons why wedding clothes do survive and why they continue to fascinate us today is because they do so much work to mitigate the drama that's inherent in legally binding together two families and countries and cultures.
0: Absolutely. Well, we are nearing the end of our time together, Kimberly, and we have only touched on really a small portion of the examples featured in your wonderful book. Before we go, is there any story or dress in particular you would like to highlight or share that we have not yet discussed?
2: Well, I it in this book right before COVID hit. So there are no COVID era weddings in the book. Uh, But if I had to include some, they would definitely go in the wartime wedding chapter. Absolutely. (laughs) Because I think uh, Brides Day have responded really bravely and creatively to a time of um, similar danger and scarcity and uncertainty Uh, during the war. Planning ceremonies uh, was often done at the last minute. They were very small. They were on a budget, uh, but they were still very romantic, even if they were very simple or very last minute. And we've seen a lot of emphasis recently on making do and mending, uh, where, which brides today value for reasons of sustainability, if not wartime austerity. If you look at uh, Princess Beatrice and Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who got married last year, they both recycled and remodeled vintage couture gowns that had belonged to their famous grandmothers, which was not only eco-friendly, but lent poignancy and historical perspective to these dramatically scaled back ceremonies. So I, I think we're learning a lot of interesting historical lessons about dress uh, even today.
0: Oh, absolutely. Kimberly, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you back on dress and to see you for the first time over Zoom. (laughs) Thank you for being here.
2: Very happy to be here, Cassidy. Thank you for inviting me back.
1: Kimberly, as always, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Yeah, actually, she has been on the show twice now, Dress Listeners. So if you've been following us from season one, she did a wonderful episode on Rose Bertin, and then she also came back to discuss her other book, Worn on This Day. So definitely check out those episodes if you have not already. It's always such a treat to have Kimberly here to share her research. And April, I'm curious, now that we've had this discussion, do you have a favorite wedding dress in history or one you found exceptional that you'd like to share?
1: Hands down, without question. I know immediately the answer to this, and that would be Cristobal Balenciaga's iconic wedding gown from 1967. (laughs) Um, It was actually recently on view not too long ago in the Heavenly Bodies exhibition that was produced by the Costume Institute, and it was at the portion of the exhibition that was at the Cloisters. So here we are in this, like, very, very old chapel and the cloisters, and this dress is on full display. And if some of you didn't get a chance to see it, basically it is almost like this A-line trapeze wedding gown that is so simple and minimal, but breathtaking all at the same time. And often it's erroneously called the one seam wedding dress, that's actually not true, but that it does kind of like to a level of simplicity because there is no embellishment. It's entirely about the silhouette. So it's like this trapeze that falls all the way to the floor away from the body. And then it just has this really simple, like curving hem down the back. And, and apparently the dress only has five seams in it, not one. Um, but then the veil that goes with the dress is also really kind of lovely. It almost mimics the shape of the dress. So it's almost like this helmet and i say that because both the veil and the dress itself are made out of silk gazar which is very very stiff so it's like a hat and then the veil kind of comes down lower in the back it's it's if you've seen it you know You will never forget it in your entire life.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so 1960s. It's very avant-garde in silhouette and design. It's pretty incredible. And it really speaks to, like, the way that Balenciaga was experimenting with all these different shapes in the 1960s. Although you and I were just having this conversation before we started recording. I don't actually know when the tradition of designers, including a wedding dress, as, like, the last, like, the finale in their fashion shows started. So that's something we're going to have to dig into. Yes. For sure. Yeah. Get get right on that. (laughs) And of course, I would be remiss if I did not mention my own wedding dress because (laughs) (laughs) it's something so very special to so many people. And it's a dress, you know, that I will never fit into again. Um, It's very carefully archived and packed away in a archival box. But it was so special because my dear, dear friends, Jonathan and David, made it for me And we kind of worked together on the design and then they created it for me. And I actually traveled all the way to Paris to get the lace. I went through that whole process with them. And then, of course, wore it on that one and only day (laughs) that I will ever be married. So, you know, the wedding dress is just something that is so symbolic in so many ways. And it's pretty incredible because if you consider it, you only wear it once.
1: Yes. And actually, I will say this. I have worn mine more than once because after many, many years, um, my wedding dress actually found its way into the drag closet at the house in Fire Island at the Beach House (laughs) because it was just sitting in a box and I felt like I wanted it to go on to have some other lives. So I've worn it around at parties before and, and a lot of my guy friends will put it on too. And it's just silliness. And, and I like the fact that people are still playing with it and still wearing it.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting, too, because as Kimberly and I talked about in the episode, the wedding dress did not used to be a garment that was only worn once. Even by women in the upper echelons of society, they would repurpose their wedding gown before the 20th century. So, another interesting thread to kind of pull to uncover when the one time wedding dress came into being. I'm guessing it has something to do with marketing, but we'll yes, leave that there. <laughs>
1: On that note, that does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you reflect on a garment you cherish next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each
0: week's episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to you and of course, our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More addressed on Thursday.